This is Voices of COVID-19. I'm Brian Lucas. Thanks for joining us. As the United States passes the grim milestone of more than 200,000 COVID deaths, for some reason, we still can't seem to come to a true consensus about how we're going to approach this pandemic. There are people who are protesting against masks. We're starting to see large political rallies without a hint of social distancing. We're even seeing people question whether COVID deaths are really deaths from COVID. I understand COVID fatigue. Nobody likes having to live under this cloud of fear and uncertainty, but we're still in the middle of this, and no amount of trying to downplay it or explain it away is going to change the fact that people are getting sick and people are dying every day. Ignoring or downplaying COVID comes from a place of privilege. Young, healthy people who have access to quality healthcare can perhaps feel invincible. And the fact is that most of them would survive if they got sick. But there are many people who don't have the luxury of this cavalier view. Elderly people, poor people, people of color are disproportionately impacted by COVID, as are people who have other health issues that make them particularly vulnerable. My guest today fits that final category. Stephanie Zarbach is a mother of two teenagers. She's approaching her 50th birthday. She's been married to her husband for more than 20 years. Four years ago, while she was training for her 27th half marathon, Stephanie was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease related to multiple sclerosis. She's been in a wheelchair ever since. Stephanie has been quarantined in her house for more than six months because she's in a high-risk category for COVID. She's doing everything she can to stay safe and trying to protect herself from those who take their health and safety for granted. To talk about what it's been like, I'm honored to welcome Stephanie Zarbach. Stephanie, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today. Glad to be here. The first thing I'd like to do is tell me a little bit about your story and the health issues that you've had that have led you to this point right now, sort of the pre-COVID story that, that you have to tell. Sure. In 2016, early October, I started feeling a little unsteady on my feet. Like, for example, when I'd get to the top of the stairs, I'd go, hmm, I think I'm going to hold the railing before I go down. I don't feel confident enough that I can keep my balance going down the stairs. This kind of progressed. Uh, At the same time, I was like, I'm healthy. I'm 45. What's the deal here? I'm just going to keep going on with life. And I was busy training for my 27th half marathon. So I'd go out running and I'd have to, I remember in my head, have to tell my left foot to pick up and I'd start to stumble a little bit. So I had to literally say in my mind, pick up your left foot. But I kept running. I wasn't running fast, but I just was like, oh, it's just the heat. I'm sure it's something else. Not true to form. I decided to like go in and see the doctor. Usually I would put it off and be like, oh, I'm too busy. And I went in to see the doctor and he had me do a little gait test and I walked for him. He goes, hmm, you know, we're going to have you do an MRI. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. We're going to have you do it tonight. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's very interesting. And so I went in and they did this MRI. And before I left the hospital, they said, the doctor wants to talk to you. And she said, well, what we're seeing, we think looks very likely to be multiple sclerosis, MS. I didn't even know what it was. I had to go look it up. So I came home and the next two weeks were kind of a blur as I had a number of tests done. So they ruled everything else out. And by October 31st on Halloween, the doctor was able to say, yep, we think you have MS or an MS related disease. 
Five days later, I could no longer walk. So I entered the hospital and it began a two month stay. The doctor's trying to figure out what was going on. This was so sudden and so severe that it was quite a mystery. And in the end, they you know, said, well, we're gonna call it MS, but it really doesn't have a lot of the hallmarks. It's something probably more rare and a little more sinister. So after two months in the hospital, I was released. And what had happened is I'd had a lesion on my spine that uh, equates right about to my belly button. And I lost all ability to move or feel anything from my belly button down. Let's fast forward a little bit now to the beginning of 2020. So you have dealt with so much in terms of health concerns and mysteries and rare illnesses. And then you start to hear about the coronavirus. When did that start to perk up in your ears as something that you should be paying attention to? Do you remember, was there a moment when you're like, whoa, wait a second, I gotta, I gotta find out more about this or I gotta ask my doctor about this? So we started hearing about it in late February. Definitely. I remember that. And I remember it being late February because my daughter was going to be coming home from her first year in college for spring break. And we just started hearing grumblings about this uh, coronavirus where, you know, it was in China. It was maybe coming closer. Um, We have relatives in Seattle. We heard some rumblings there. Really what I remember most is when my daughter came home from college in early March and midway through spring break, the college made a very decisive and clear decision that the kids weren't coming back. Uh, At that point, I really started going, huh, how serious is this? And luckily I had an appointment with my neurologist already scheduled. And he was so great about laying out like what risk factors there were for me specifically. Did it surprise you what your neurologist told you about how concerned you should be? Yes and no. When you have a spinal cord injury, your body just does not know how to react to viruses. So I knew that was going to be a factor. And the fact that MS is an autoimmune disease, I knew that was going to be a factor too. And funnily enough, I had actually talked to my neurologist in person because I'd seen him in February and he'd said, oh, we're seeing this crazy virus. I'm concerned that the steroids that they're giving people are because their own bodies are overreacting to it. So he was very curious about it. And so when I talked to him, I knew he knew what was going on because he'd already been talking about it in February, mid-February. What he told me was that I wasn't at the highest risk factor. Like I'm someone who goes to the gym. I, I work out. I do yoga, I have all these things that I do to help my health, that he was like, your risk factor isn't as high as the most vulnerable, but you're still pretty vulnerable. His basic bottom line was, it's not you, Zarbach, that are going to have the problem. It's the other yahoos out there that are going to cause problems for you. And he used the example of if you're rolling down the street and someone's coming towards you and they're having reckless or not very serious behavior towards the coronavirus, you can't just jump out of the way. So he's like, me and my wife, we could just like step into the street and keep going. And you can't because you don't have a curb cut right there. So he said, so for those reasons, primarily, you really need to just stay home. You need to to quarantine. What was that like for you to hear? Were you scared after that conversation? I wouldn't 
say so much scared. I mean, I was kind of like, oh, I'm glad that he doesn't think I'm super vulnerable because I'm, I'm doing the right things to take care of my personal health. But I will say what it made me feel like, it it kind of brought me back to when I first landed in the hospital in you know, 2016 to what is this invisible disease that's, you know, floating through the air can get into your body and wreak unbelievable havoc. It felt very much like deja vu back to that. And then you had to resolve in your mind how you were going to attack this and how you were going to protect yourself and what quarantine meant to you and figure that out at a time when a lot of us didn't really know what that meant. So how did you figure out how that was going to play out in your life and how did you you know, talk to your kids and your husband about it and figure out what, what was this going to mean going forward? Well, luckily, uh, in our household, we all can drive. So I knew I would not be like the only one needing to go get groceries. We had to sit down and well, we had to sit down regularly and kind of talk about how are we going to handle this? The kids were really, really great about it. They were like, oh gosh, this could be really serious for you, mom. And I'm like, yeah, you know, according to the doctor, this could be really bad. So we need to take extra precautionary steps uh, towards what we're going to allow in the house, what we're going to allow you guys to go do. And again, from the start, we said, we're going to follow the numbers. So we just were very straightforward with the kids. Again, we didn't want to scare anyone and we didn't want to live by fear ourselves, but we wanted to be smart and err on the side of caution rather than recklessness of any sort. So we just developed some, some protocols, you know, Greg would do the grocery shopping and the kids wouldn't go with them. And we were really, really quick on, we're going to wear masks um, and just model that. The kids were really restricted on how many friends they could see and where they could see them. Um, You know, we were really pushing, like, if you're outside, that'd be so much better. And, you know, we just didn't know a lot then. So, you know, we ran the whole gamut. Everyone did on, huh, what is the best things to do? How do we mitigate risk? What's risk for us versus someone else? My wife is a leukemia survivor. And when she was going through a bone marrow transplant, she had to be very concerned about, you know, wearing a mask outside and, and her immune system was so compromised. And I remember going out with her and almost feeling the weight of the infected world on us just wanting to keep it at bay. And this brought back memories of that for me. What was it like for you? Like when you do have to go out and you're wearing a mask, do you have this thought of what's going on around me? Are you hypersensitive to, you know, are people keeping their distance? Who's wearing a mask? And how do you monitor your anxiety level going outside when you have to? Well, luckily, I've had very few reasons to go outside. It's day 183 of my quarantine. That's six months worth of time, isn't it? Wow. Um, and uh, I've only gone out a handful of times, and mostly it's for medical appointments. So those are the times when, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm hyper vigilant, but I just feel like I, I feel like I'm like the, you know, CIA just watching everything, not doing anything, but just watching. My husband is also a woodworker. And so he actually had a handful of N95 masks that he would use with his woodworking. So I have one of those masks. That's what I wear when I go out because I'm concerned about things getting to me. I'm amazed at how the medical community is so well prepared. So that, you know, helps my anxiety. But I will say like, by the time I get back home, I'm like, exhausted, just from the hypervigilance, the concern, the am I going to be safe 
am I going to pick this up? If, especially if I'm in a medical community where there's more sick people typically. Yeah, it's very interesting. And in my worst days, I'm like pissed at people who are just, you know, being so flippant about, oh, I don't need to wear this. And I'm like, get your dang mask on. That's, you know, you're not helping anyone. So I want to get to that a little bit more in just a second. But my other question, though, is about 183 days of quarantine. Emotionally, how do you do that? That's got to really weigh on you that you have not been able to get out in the community in, in a real life way for that long. Yeah. Here's what I've done, which is, you know, I am surprised it is so effective is that I have taken a step away from social media because that just had too many triggers for me in terms of seeing everyone's best life all the time was like, oh my gosh, am I the only one at home? But also I, I feel very safe at home and I try and focus on that and that this is the safest place for me. And I'm so fortunate that I've got a great setup where I have, you know, all the ability to have Zoom happy hours with friends, to call someone on the phone, to send, you know, cards to whoever I want to. Luckily, I'm also an introvert, so I don't need to be around a ton of people to get filled up. And so I find different ways to, you know, fill my bucket by being at home and doing things that that help me stay positive. Thinking about what's going on in the world in 2020, especially as you've watched the way that this has been handled in our country and the numbers mm -hmm. in the United States versus the rest of the world. What's that like for you to think that our response seems to not be measuring up to a lot of other countries? And a lot of those countries seem to be getting somewhat back to normal, at least tentatively. Has that been frustrating for you or what, what are your thoughts as you watch that? It's interesting. Um, I know quite a few people around the world. Um, my niece is, she's living in the Czech Republic right now. She's a teacher for preschoolers there. And um, it's fascinating having text conversations with her about how she couldn't come home this summer because it was just too risky um, and how life has very much returned to normal there in the Czech Republic with very few casualties from the coronavirus. I just love seeing her response to things. She's like, I just can't, I can't risk it. I can't come home. I just don't want to go back to lockdown because they had a very severe lockdown. I have a, a large number of friends down in Brazil. I was a uh, foreign exchange student in high school. And I knew from the get-go that things would not go well there just because the culture is so, I'm like, social distancing? No way. Like, and, you know, so that, you know, and then I talked to friends and they, they're, uh, their government is very much like ours, and so things are not going very well there as well. Same thing, I have I have friends in India who I knew that would be tough just because of the population density. So my heart just goes out to them. I'm extremely jealous of New Zealand and how well that country seems to have really clamped the lid on things so effectively. I don't know when we're going to get out of it here because we just don't seem to have any kind of consolidated leadership around how to make this focused on eradicating it. I think an interesting thing about this is that strangely, politics seems to have inserted itself into this discussion to the point where wearing a mask becomes a political statement or not wearing a mask becomes a political statement. 
you wonder how it got to that point when in the past, and you know, we just had the 9-11 anniversary and everybody's nostalgic for 9-12, you know, when we were all one country and we were unified against this threat and we haven't had a 9-12 moment around COVID. When you see that, what would you want people to know about the fact that this is not a political thing? This is something that is very personal to your health and your well-being and your future. I know. I wish we could totally disassociate the two. For me, I just feel like there's a real lack of empathy for the loss that's going on. And how do we acknowledge that so that we can move forward? I'm hoping we can look back in 19 years like we could for 9-11 this year and be like, oh, yeah, we we know what we went through and what it feels we feel empathy for those that went through it. So I'm sure that you've heard that there are people who are asserting their right to not wear a mask. And, and there are people who think coronavirus is a hoax. There are a lot of conspiracy theories around this. And there are a lot of people who are making it a point to not socially distance or wear a mask. Considering how vulnerable you are, if you saw somebody who was carrying an anti-mask sign, what would you say to them? Ooh, great question. Um, I'd pretty much say, well, you can't come to my house. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, that's the... That's the tact I've taken is because I can't control other people's behavior. I can only control my own. God, I sound like a parent, don't I? Um, I'm like, you you be you, but you can't come to my house. I mean, I have, I have close family members who are in that frame of mind that they're not going to wear a mask. That's, it's their right. They're right as an American to not wear a mask. So they're not going to. And I'm like, well, I guess then we don't get to hang out until this has gone by. I can't make them wear a mask. I'm saddened. I, I mean, deep down, I'm very much saddened that we can't uh, look at the bigger, in my opinion, it's a bigger picture, like to get through this. If we all, the science is saying, if we all wore masks, we could really tap this thing down. But, you know, with the rise of conspiracy theories and yeah, it's a hoax and it's my right to not wear one. Yeah. <laughs> there's no solution. It makes me sad. I think that if there's one thing that you've learned is that you can't predict how anything is going to happen. And so people who feel so invulnerable to this virus, they don't understand like you do, that you don't know what the future holds related to your health in any way. Do you think that gives you a unique perspective on on this? I think very much so, because never in a billion years would I have ever predicted I would go from running half marathons to not being able to walk again. And it was a one in a billion chance that I would get this disease that my family has no, none, not a glimmer of any part of my family tree having any kind of MS or even autoimmune disease. I beat the odds, not the odds I wanted to beat, right? Like one in a billion. And this coronavirus is not a one in a billion thing now. A certain percentage of people are going to get it. And a certain percentage of people are become long haulers. That's what they're calling them now, um, that are going to long haul this disease and have it become chronic, which is basically what I have. MS and a spinal cord injury are definitely both chronic conditions. And I would wish that upon no one, no one. And it just, it makes me, it saddens me that, you know, people potentially people I love dearly could be blasé about this and contract it and end up 
having the rest of their life impacted by it. I think a lot of people are sort of entering into this COVID fatigue where we've been at it for so long and the numbers are just so overwhelming that they almost start to lose meaning for a lot of people. How are you coping with the fact that, you know, 183 days into quarantine, we, we don't know where that number goes. How are you handling that? With no end in sight. Um, well, number one, I definitely focus more on the present. I mean, that became really crystal clear as soon as my health took such a crazy turn that the present is really all you're guaranteed right now. So I definitely focus on the present. But also I try and have small incremental things out there. Like next month will be my birthday and it's a big one. I'm going to turn the big 5-0. I've been focusing on how I want to celebrate that in the time of COVID. And, you know, like launching my daughter back to her second year of college was something that I actually looked forward to because it was a change. You know, it's the monotony that will bring me down. Like just, oh, it's one more day to get up and figure out what to have for lunch, you know, um, that that can really bring you down. But if I find some things that give me purpose, some things that bring me a, a little bit of joy on the day to day, I really, I seek that kind of thing out. Um, and the things that do bring me joy and purpose right now are like having friends over for coffee on my front patio. Um, I even bought a like gas heater so that I can sit out there well into the fall wrapped in blankets, but I can still have someone sit there, a couple friends sit there with me. We're all six feet apart, able to still see people. You know, those kind of things are what keep us going during this time of when will it ever be over? Because there is no end in sight. And I think also the fact that I've had, you know, a traumatic experience with my body no longer working in the ways I thought it would. And then I know what it's like to continue on even after that's happened. I feel like I've got the endurance of the long haul. You know, I was a half marathoner beforehand. And I think that teaches you a lot about just keep going. So a lot of of that helps me to be like, okay, we don't know when the end is going to be, but it's going to, there's going to be an end and hopefully we'll be able to get some good out of it. And that's my hope. Is there anything positive that you hope that we will take out of this once it's all over or maybe any way that you hope that maybe we will change for good in the future? Yeah, a couple of things I'd say is I hope that, you know, this great pause have given us the chance to really appreciate some of the things we take for granted. I just wrote a letter to my mother-in-law today in it. I was like, you know, once this pandemic's over, I'm looking forward to getting back together all these traditions and rituals um, that we so took for granted, I hope we never do again. Because not being able to be with family members as much or get to go and travel the way so many of us love to do, I hope that we just have a little more gratitude for that, I'd say. Not take it for granted. And uh, I appreciated the whole, the extended spring break my daughter was on having all those family dinners. We have some really great, fun memories from that. So I hope we continue to then have more of those family dinners when we can. You're providing a great reminder to us to be thankful for the things that we have and to look forward to reclaiming those as we can in the future in whatever form we can take that. So I really appreciate your time today and good luck going forward. And I hope that your quarantine day number doesn't get too high and that we can all get back together at some point. Yeah, 
it will also be a fun story to tell, you know, years on, my grandkids ask, well, what did you do? I said, well, I stayed home for 192 days, you know, whatever it is. Oh, man. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. For sure. Thank you for having me. Voices of COVID-19 is an attempt to document the thoughts and feelings of people who are perhaps outside the limelight to get personal reflections on how a pandemic impacts all of our lives. If you know of someone who might make a good guest on this podcast, please send them to me at brian at truevoicecommunications.com. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay separate and wear a mask and we'll get through this together. Mm-hmm.